Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from John Cassie, founder and CEO of Factory 42, a London-based creative studio that specializes in immersive media and experiences about the company's recent push into content for children. And the co-founders of Relax TV, an ad-supported streaming service recently launched in the UK and Germany that is aiming to be available worldwide by the end of 2021, looking to rival Netflix by betting on a return to channel-based TV. UK production studio Factory 42 recently launched a children's content division to tap into the educational technology market, which is projected to be worth in excess of $155 billion by 2025. The company, which specializes in mixed reality content, has made two science-based augmented reality learning apps as part of its kids' push, which has been accelerated by the pandemic. Clive Whittingham spoke with Factory 42 founder and CEO John Cassie about making engaging educational content for kids, as well as how it managed to tap into a multi-million pound pot of money to fund the new apps. Clive began by asking John about how his experience at Sky, where he ran TV channels, commissioned programming and oversaw its push into 3D, laid the foundations for Factory 42's work. So I was at Sky for, for over 10 years and... Um... Although Sky may not be the most traditional of broadcasters, uh, the whole believe in better ethos was fairly um, heavily stamped upon me. The, the ability to sort of see where technology is disrupting the content industry and see how you can provide new types of things to new types of audiences was really, really exciting. And so really what we've done is um, we have built a company where we've brought brilliant people from the world of games, people who've made AAA uh, games for Sony PlayStation, combined them with People who worked on visual effects for films ranging from Hobbit to Fight Club to Harry Potter. And then also TV people who've worked on everything from The Apprentice to BAFTA winning David Attenborough shows. And brought them together to try and work out where is storytelling going with technology changing and how can we create new types of content that is worth paying for and that audiences will be delighted by. And we've done that through a mixture of apps. Um, we've done a little bit of television. And also, starting this summer, we were due to be doing ticketed experiences in large buildings for groups of people, which was a brilliant idea, until COVID hit. Yes, that's, uh, that's about, the, about just about the last thing you want to be in. So um... I forgot to add that we were going to ask people to wear headsets as well, that someone else had worn 10 minutes earlier. So um, <laughs> it, it really was. Had you put everything together, it could not have been probably the worst thing for COVID. We're talking because you've announced a, a push towards, I think it's edutainment or uh, certainly kids content in this area. Can you tell us about that? It's something, so, so this move into this sort of, uh, what we call edutainment, I mean, it's a terrible phrase, but it's effectively creating really fun learning experiences for kids. Now, this is something that actually had been on our long-term plan, probably was sort of three years away. But, at, but then when COVID hit, our short-term plan, which was creating ticketed experiences in places like the Natural History Museum in London and the Science Museum, uh, COVID meant that both those buildings had to shut. Uh, we had experiences running in shopping centres. They had to shut. And so like many creative and other businesses, we had to pivot very, very quickly. And so we came up with a thought to take a lot of the robots and dinosaurs that we'd already created and build them into apps that families could access on mobile phones from home 
whilst the schools were closed. And um, thankfully, Innovate UK, who are the government sort of innovation and investment arm, who provided the investment for the initial project, decided that they wanted to back us further to do this. So they've been incredible. Uh, we were given further funding to do this. And six months and two weeks after somebody in the team first having the idea, these two apps are now live in the Google and Apple app stores and families all over the place are starting to download them, play with them and enjoy them. It's the balance between uh, the education and the entertainment on these apps, because I guess that's how you that's the balance you have to strike, right, to get kids hooked to them. What makes a good one, or more interestingly, what makes a terrible one, in, in your opinion? Well, well, I mean, I think so. It's a bunch of different things. I mean, my, my sense of it is that, first of all, the kids have got to enjoy it. They've got to have fun doing it, and they've got to want to do it. If it feels like homework from the start, it's probably, you, you know, you, you're going to struggle. And the so what we wanted to do was make these things really fun and engaging. You have to make sure that the, the language and the skill level is appropriate for their age group. Um, so not too hard and certainly not too easy. Kids want to kind of, um, they, they aspire upwards. You know, six-year-olds want to do what eight-year-olds do. Eight-year-olds want to do what 12-year-olds do. So you're, you're kind of aspiring upwards. Um, and also making sure that underpinning it all are some very clear sort of learning plans from the start. So you're trying to work out what is it we want these kids to take away from it to really understand and engage with. And so I think if you can plan those things out very, very carefully at the start, and then test it, test it as much as possible as you go. So we were doing some, you know, really regular testing uh, over Zoom with families all over the UK who were trying early builds of these apps. And we were able to feed back into the coding team. And the very next day, they were launching new builds with these feedbacks from the customers taken on board. So it was iterative. We did it quickly, very focused on the audience. And, you know, so far, so good. We've been talking to production companies about how you go about pitching shows and ideas to new people and new contacts when you can't actually go out to networking events and things like that. I guess if you're launching your own app, it doesn't really matter that much that you're stuck in an office at home, does it? Or am I wrong? No, no. So, so I think you're, I mean, so I think you're right. I mean, when, when it comes down to it, the apps, we've been fortunate in that, you know, we have been pretty much able to do everything we would need to do in our, our normal office. You know, we're based in Somerset House in the centre of London. It's an office we all love going to. But the reality is we we found that we can do pretty much what we need to do from home with minimal disruption. As long as the team have got the right computers, the right software, they can make things happen. And it's been challenging for some with kind of kids crawling all over them or having to use their washing machine as a desk. But they've done an amazing job of getting this stuff out there. And certainly compared to the challenges around producing TV right now, it has been a lot easier, although not easy, to create apps from home. How else has COVID affected the sort of strategic direction your company was heading in? You mentioned live events, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if I can put it that way, at, at museums and things, which obviously isn't possible at the moment. But how else has the company had to, to pivot and change? Yeah, well, so so the um, so it's, it's interesting. The live events that we've been doing, we will be bringing back in next year. We're trying to work out when it'll some, be sometime between the spring and the summer of next year. Um, it's been challenging to continue production on those because we need teams to be together in a location, integrating physical sets with digital assets, and that's not been possible. But we will bring those at some point next year. It's you know I guess the usual things that creative businesses find you know trying to trying to sort of run a creative business on Zoom is challenging. Um, you know creative sessions feel much better when you're in the room. 
uh, we've got some really brilliant people who work for the company, uh, two of whom I have not yet met face to face, right? They've been hired on Zoom. They're doing a brilliant job. I, I know their screen on my computer, their face on my computer really well, but I haven't actually sat down with two of them yet. And that's just the weirdest thing. I never would have imagined we would do that, but it's sort of forced us all to work like that. We've been lucky as well. I think that, you know, a couple of people, one of the key guys, based in Manchester, we're in London, it would not have been, well, it would have been possible. It probably just wouldn't have occurred to us to, to sort of cast the net that wide when we were going in and out of Somerset House every day. So it's, I, I'm not going to lie, it's been a real roller coaster over six months. It's been horrendously stressful at times, but also I think we've been fairly fortunate. Um, we've been able to carry on making good stuff. We've had the backing of really, really good partners, commissioners, funders, and um, we're, we're still delivering. Do you see that culture of presenteeism, that idea that you're not working unless you're at work and all sitting in the same office? Is that going to come back in in the same way it was before or have we shown that we can be trusted to be at home? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people could be trusted to work from home. Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, so my sort of sense of this has always been in the sense I don't really mind where you are as long as you're able to deliver and do your job and if that if you're more comfortable doing that at home that's absolutely fine by me uh, I, I do think there are kind of things about being in the office whether that is weekly team meetings or creative sessions brainstorming that are harder to do remotely but they're not impossible and people are coming up with ever more cunning ways to do these things yeah the idea that someone has to sort of clock in at nine in the morning and clock out at six in the evening from a physical structure a distance from their home feels very old-fashioned even though we we're all doing that religiously nine months ago. So the tech had been blurring the boundaries of how we consume entertainment anyway and television had, had sort of been grappling with that if that's the, the word I can use. What do you think Covid will have done for that as we move into 2021? I mean do you want to do a bit of future gazing for us and and talk about the direction television in particular is is heading in with this all of this uh, tech influence that's going on with it. it you know it's quite clear that there is a challenge making shows right now and there is a sort of supply of new shows it has become far far lower uh, i think if you're in animation or anything you can make on a computer we're in good shape right now and i think that that is probably going to be for the midterm you know quite a quite a sort of key source of of content for broadcasters i think that the what is interesting is what it's enabling people to do in the interactive space i mean the apps that we are are making you know on our dinosaur app you can have an app yeah, it's an augmented reality app you can have a dinosaur running around your living room responding to your movements um your kids petting it caring for it it's kind of magical and you can't do that through linear television. It just isn't possible. It's, it's, I'm not saying it's a substitute for linear television, but it is a different type of experience. And it's really immersive and engaging. And I think that's really, really exciting for areas like education because exciting kids and getting them into things is, is half the battle. If you can then get them to learn from that, that's, that's when you're onto a winner. Kids are a great direction to, to move into because... For a lot of kids, they just don't engage with linear television at all now. It's all about YouTube or, or Netflix or wherever they get it from, but it's very rarely linear television. Kids' TV's almost disappeared from the from the main terrestrial channels in this country. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, like, I mean, I, I, you know, we we have a Sky Q box at home. My kids are always on. You know, pretty much everything they watch is on demand. They're on Netflix the entire time. They, you know, iPlayer, 
hardly any of it as a live transmission. It was kind of alarming. I think probably I'm a sort of classic, classic sort of media hypocrite in that I fairly I ration my own children's screen time quite, quite a bit, even though my household livelihood depends largely on it. And um, but you know, my kids, my six-year-old is far better at dinosaurs at than I am. Which is just just the case, right? She she got to it so quickly. She is not somebody who spends loads of time on a phone. But there's that sort of intuitiveness. I mean, it's been well designed, but she is across it and gets it in a way that is both remarkable. I'm slightly proud, but I was also a bit scared. <laughs> you mentioned you get um, you were fortunate enough to secure quite quite a sizable funding grant for for this. Can you talk a little bit about that? the process of getting that first of all and then second of all is there a fear with certainly some sort of economic strife coming down the the pipe at the end of all of this that grants and funding for more forward thinking and tech things and the arts are going to be harder to come by in 2021 and, and beyond so, so yes yeah, so, so the dinosaurs and robots apps and the and the ticketed experiences we were talking about earlier that they're funded by a big sort of government initiative the creative industry is called audiences of the future and i think it was a total pot of about 33 million quid uh it was like an open competition back in the sort of second half of 28 there were four big sort of top prizes i guess um each of four million pounds each and we went for one of those in a consortium which included um sky and the two museums the almeida theater the university of exeter and, and we won one of them so that's been brilliant and Innovate has subsequently provided us with a bit more funding to do these apps it, uh, and they've been amazing Innovate. I mean, you know, we're lucky we work with commissioners and broadcasters across all the big players and generally we've got good relationships with all of them. But I must say that, you know, the government who it's very easy to sort of say negative things about have been phenomenal throughout this process, really backing our creativity giving us the space to do what we need to do, being fairly relaxed when things have to change massively because of COVID and just continuing to support us. So, so if the government's able to carry on doing that, then I think we're in good shape. There is only so much money that the government is going to be able to spend on lots of different sectors. I think that healthcare and education are probably going to be the government's priorities. But that said, there are some really great opportunities for creative organisations, particularly if you're the sort of organisation that does want to try new things. And so, you know, people like have been really, really brilliant supporter and sort of champion of our work. So we're we're really pleased to work with them. What are your big priorities for twenty twenty one? I mean, just keeping keeping the lights on, or more ambitious than uh, than that? Yeah, well, I think in COVID, most people sort of feel that keeping the lights on is is a good day. Um, I think we're, we're we're more ambitious than that. We've got some new things starting soon, which we're very excited about, and I think that will keep us occupied. Um, for a while, uh, I think that we want to. Well, we definitely want to get the dinosaurs and robots live ticketed experiences back up and running. So that's going to be a big focus for next year. We want to build on what we've learned with the uh, the dinosaurs and robots mobile apps because we think there's a really interesting opportunity there. And you know, we're just interested to see where this goes in terms of blending that world of technology, storytelling, visual effects. Uh, together so it's 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 a combination of being a slightly sort of tantalizing but slightly terrifying time in covid isn't it it's where everything changes every single day but i think if you hold your nerve and you focus on the important things 
you conserve your cash and you you push on, then I think you know the opportunities are out there. John Cassie of Factory 42. Avod service Relax TV recently launched in the UK and Germany and has ambitious expansion plans worldwide as it sees itself filling a gap in the market not catered for by the likes of Netflix, Amazon Prime and YouTube outside of the US. It uses a hybrid model offering linear television channels targeting niche interests, which also allow users to fast forward or rewind through as well as select videos on demand. They believe this will solve the problem we often face in an on-demand world where we're endlessly scrolling through for the right program to watch. I spoke to the company's co-founders, CEO Ronnie Lutzi and President Dirk Wittenborg, to discuss their business. I began by asking Ronnie how exactly a TV channel can be on-demand and linear at the same time. So the, our offering is structured in linear channels that allows the viewers to enjoy TV immediately. So different than, for example, on uh, classical on-demand, you do not have to go into the app and spend an average seven minutes, I think, in the US to find the con find any content. So you open the app and you can enjoy TV immediately and avoid the long search times we know from SVODs, for example. But as soon as you, for example, jump in the EPG of the service, it is at the same time the on-demand section. So if you are if you are watching a channel at that very moment, you can jump forward and backward in the EPG, open a show which is scheduled for like in three hours, and you arrive in an extra menu. And by clicking play, you automatically change from a linear experience into the on-demand experience. So there is a permanent switch between linear experience and on-demand experience, whatever your interest is at that very moment so it's a bit like going back to the future it's the uh, the added yes. flexibility of on demand exactly so if you want choice you go into the on demand section if you don't want choice just lean back on the couch you know uh you can just you know click up and down through the channel list and enjoy the tv and so these are also known as fast channels is that right? So free ad-supported streaming TV. We're seeing companies like Pluto TV, which has a backer in Viacom CBS, and Tubi, uh, which is owned by Fox. Do you see the AVOD market go or going in a similar way to SVOD, where there is maybe one major player that becomes synonymous with the technology? So Netflix in SVOD, for example. Well, hopefully it's, it's relaxed one day. Um, but um, you're right, these are the kind of companies competitors um, running a similar business model. But when you you mentioned them as like Pluto, Viacom. So this all is a bit, um, um, they're usually two, let's say two big partners and they all lean on. It's either uh, like a technology company, it's Samsung TV Plus, like Pluto with Viacom. And then you have, this is all coming from, especially the content industry goes after these services it's because they're all in a race um, direct to customer. Um, basically, and the most famous uh, example is Disney. We see this is um, what's happening, but I think the moment they get connected to some big partners, they are at the same time strong and very limited. And this is exactly what made Netflix so strong. They are completely independent. So they are, they are somehow neutral, and everyone was keen on having content on Netflix, even though Disney pulled it out um, in their part of their direct-to-consumer strategy. So we, we believe there is, is, is a market for a dominant player in the world, 
but we also believe it's um, highly important to stay independent, independent from any, let's say, dominating shareholder from the content side or dominating shareholder from the device side, because we both we need both areas, um, you know, all the device uh, brands to support us and also also all the content owners to support us. Otherwise, there's no chance to win a dominant dominant market position. If you look at Viacom, like Pluto, Viacom content will always be featured over content of any other creators. And the same is true for NBC's Peacock or um, Tubi's, uh, or, uh, Tubi's owned by Fox. So I think these are the two essential things to be device independent and content independent for long-term success. We've seen the pandemic have a usually negative effect on the advertising market worldwide. And obviously, as its name suggests, AVOD is heavily dependent on ads. So how is your business being affected by the downturn in advertising? Well, this downturn in advertising is relative. Um, there was um, initially um, a significant, like Facebook was suffering a lot in terms of advertising spending on Facebook. Um, because uh, people were just saying, okay, I have, um, we have the, the fastest immediate impact on reducing costs. But um, on the other hand, um, and you know, this, this already came back um, to a quite normal level. And when you speak, um, for example, like to Sony um, as a group uh, in India, they had a significant dip um, in advertising, but they said like a few weeks later, uh, while still everyone was complaining about reduced uh, revenues, uh, advertising already came back um, to the same level as before. So, and, you know, everything that happens um, at home, um, I mean, certainly, you know, restaurants, um, as an example, would probably uh, take down uh, their advertising spending. But when you look at car manufacturers, they are already um, significantly back to, to normal levels, even probably higher because they are all now um, having two things like catching up with a lost revenue and also promoting new new technology, uh, basically all uh, electronic cars um, coming to the market. So we we are quite confident that the ad market will maybe dip for three months, six months. But when we look at the like a long-term strategy, which we have in mind, I mean, this is more than a 10 years focus, we think these kind of little variances or like ups and downs in advertising spending will not um, hurt us. And in the long run, um, we strongly believe that advertisement spending will go up, which has been in the last years. And it, we, we think this trend, long-term spend trend is stable. And let's see, even if it's going, let's assume for a moment, would go down, um, extreme scenario. Like we believe still it's much easier to win the market share, even in a stagnating market um, by a good new service than it would be to, uh, convince uh, end consumer to subscribe in another service because with Amazon and Netflix and Disney probably there are enough um, services people would subscribe and when you look at the average um, spending consumers can have uh, for entertainment there's that means we have to take away subscribers from Disney Amazon or Netflix which will be very significant um, and very difficult for us, we in a stagnating market, we would probably need to take take away um, some some shares from from other uh, internet video services or even from linear TV. And linear TV is still one of the biggest um, advertising markets. And um, sometimes I think we have a competitive advantage when someone advertises in a linear channel, which is 
not so targeted compared to a relaxed channel, which is very targeted, I think we have a good position to um, eat up some of the advertisement spending um, going to linear TV. What kind of content are you seeing really resonate on relaxed channels? From the content side, we are defining it as content that we call premium niche. So at the moment, we are concentrating to give you know content a place to be, which is targeting a niche which does not find their place, for example, on Netflix or, for example, on broadcast. And there is a lot of content out there which can't find their place. And why is that? Because the broadcasters, you know, they only have one channel where they can distribute to, to, to the audience. And they have to make sure that the content they are showing at prime time has the widest reach and interest possible, you know, to generate the ad, the ad money, right? And the same thing is true for Netflix because they have to reach as much audience as possible that the subscribers paying money every month find something they are looking for. So there is limited room, for example, to say, hey, why, and, and I give you an example, why don't we, you know, distribute, distribute um, the second league or the third league of this and the, this and that sport to the audience because the fan base and you know the members of this league are huge but it's simply not huge enough you know to find its way into the broadcast so that is what we call premium niche to have a certain amount of of reach with a premium content behind it which cannot happen today in the traditional tv models and um, in terms of content, what one you said, and you mentioned initially the impact of like Corona crisis and advertising spending, we see also some, some uh, big um, advantages coming in terms of content, because when you look at all content that is event day dependent, um, that uh, can be music concerts, sport events, um, they have all a dramatic uh, dip in income. So because all the event day income is basically gone. And so far, um, you know, they had usually the bigger, bigger um, sectors in sports. They had their big, um, you know, TV um, deals. But the smaller ones didn't have it because they were living um, significantly out of event day income. And now they are sitting there having giving their content to someone who is, who is not generating a lot of income. So all these people are now desperately looking for new sources of income. And the perfect offer for them is, you know, getting their content out on, on a platform like Relax um, to have additional advertisement income from revenue shares. So we believe that everything that is event day driven um, is um, quite perfectly um, prepared um, to be on a platform like Relax. Besides all the other um, premium niche contents, uh, you may, may fit under the category. We can build an own channel for every interest. So we can have a channel which is showing motor, uh, you know, motocross the whole day, one channel showing surfing, one channel showing music. We do not have a limitation in, 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 in the number of channels. And we can add a certain channel only for a certain region. We can take it out. It's not more than you know, a click box in our backend. And that makes offering so strong compared, for example, with traditional linear broadcasters because their distribution of setting up a channel you know, via a satellite operator, for example, is a really big process and is also connected to a huge investment. And in terms of rights and how flexible you are, do you need exclusivity? And also, do you operate a revenue share model in terms of monetization for the distributors or do you take license fees? 
Uh, no, so the, the business model is uh, is quite straightforward. So we are licensing the content, and the content partner gets a revenue share. We do not work with exclusivities um, because we have always believed, we always believed, and also learned from our experience and Foxum that content always goes where reach is because the content producer needs to monetize the content, and unless you can pay the content so much that they do not have to worry anymore you also won't get exclusivity. So uh, we have always, you know, we have always liked, you know, not talking about exclusivity, you know, offering the content simply a distribution channel to reach as much users as possible has always been our goal. So in terms of the content that you're looking to acquire, is there a type of content, a genre or an audience that you're not currently serving that you are looking to uh, to serve before we go to every market um for example as uh, pro- on, on our roadmap you know the, the one of the next countries we are going to launch in is brazil and of course our content managers you know they are they are investigating the market and to understand you know what is really popular on this specific market so if you have the brazil market you know there is a high interest in telenovelas but there is uh, also a high interest in Portuguese speaking cartoons. So we basically make a target list of, you know, content we are interested in. And before our launch, we will reach out to all relevant content partners and try to get them on board for the launch. And of course, for every region or country in this world, we do have like a particular roadmap on which content we would like to fill the service up, you know, to reach or, you know, to, to fulfill certain demands of the users. We know from our market intelligence teams are needed for that market. When are you hoping to launch in Brazil? Um, we are planning to launch uh, early Q1. Ronnie Lutzi and Dirk Wittenborg of Relax TV. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and on social media. Thanks for listening.